This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is our first show of the year. Today's Thursday, January 5th, 2023, a date that I know for sure that it is, and I know exactly what time it is and what I'm doing. Rebecca Shinsky, Happy New Year to you. Welcome to 2023 on the Book Riot Podcast. In a lot of ways, it doesn't feel like the year's gotten started until we're back in the saddle for this show. And I'm not joking about that, but it really mm-hmm. does feel like now we're, we're refreshed, we're doing a regular new show, we're not doing any wrap-ups, we're just, we're just taking our first bite of the apple that is 2023. It does. This is the thing in my week. Like, it's a real anchor. We hardly ever move this recording. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, okay, here we go. We recorded our winter preview draft or draft winter new release. I don't know. I do know that today yeah. is Thursday. So that's a win for me this week because I spent yesterday being like, it's not Wednesday. It's definitely Tuesday or Thursday. And I'm not sure which. But earlier this week, we recorded our winter new release draft for the Patreon. You can check that out at patreon.com slash book riot podcast. But that has this kind of like floating in time feeling to recording yes. it because we're talking about things that haven't come out yet. Some of them won't come out until the end of April. Since that covers January through April. This is like we're grounded in time. We're looking at things that have just recently happened. We're back on what's new, cool, we're back. and worth talking about. We're combobulating, as you've been saying all week. I'm, I'm working on it. We're like, I'm like maybe 80% combobulated, but I think by the end yes. of this recording, I'll be up in the 90s. This helps. Um, so I, yeah, so yeah, go check that out. Um, that's available there. Thanks so much to all of you who are, are subscribing to the Patreon. We continue to have fun doing that. One thing we talked about on that show that I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll work it in for the summer previewing is that what we do with that draft is try to pick a basket of books to win votes from people saying which one they like better, which is a little bit different than the books that we ourselves personally both sort of together for Mm -hmm. some of them and then individually are most excited to read. And we talked about that for a minute. I want to throw a quick idea at you. Um, I follow a couple of economists on uh, their blogs. I'm listening. And one thing that seems to have become a bit of a economist blog meme, if ever a thing could exist, is for them to make predictions about the next year, Mm. but then also give a confidence interval. Like I think there's a 70% chance of this happening or 90% chance of this happening. So I was thinking about an episode either for this show or the Patreon or I don't know, we can move it around where we look at the pre we look at the books coming out in a given season and we pick ten. And rather than just saying we're excited about them, we give our confidence interval about how likely we think we are to read them. Oh so like, okay. We can be excited about them, mm-hmm. right? We do this all the time. And you were mentioning I think what got me started is on the draft you're saying after talking about them, you're always more excited about all the books, but especially the ones we pick or we talk about than even before when you're picking the list. But what does that turn into to us actually read them, right? And how good are we at predicting which books we're actually going to pick up and read in a given season? I don't have any idea. I'm sure I could go do historical data, but I think it would be pretty funny. Like, 
what would be your what's something of a ninety percent confidence interval? Do you read ninety percent of the books? You have a ninety percent confidence <laughs> interval on. Is it higher? Is it lower? So I thought you, I, you would find that both nerdy and fun. But I wanted to pitch well, that to you here live. I love that idea. We live at the intersection of nerdy and fun. I like to think, mm-hmm. and I do have a, my own list for these first four months of the year that yeah. is about twenty titles long of like the ones that I think I definitely want to get to. And for my reading pace, that if I got to all twenty of those, that's still allowed me like another somewhere between 10 and 20 books of wiggle room to just add stuff that I feel Mm -hmm. like reading I would be very interested in how many of I'll just keep the list and see how many I just keep the list yeah Yeah. I don't know I've already started reading 2020 2020 2020 2023 (laughs) I'm way into the future uh a lot of sci-fi in my no I'm kidding um so it doesn't really work for this season because We'll have to wait till the summer. Maybe for the summer. But you read it anyway. What we can talk about it offline or maybe somewhere else. But I kind of like this idea of how good we are at, 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 at currently forecasting our future interest in the title. Yeah, I think uh, that is interesting, especially because we ended 2022, each of us with at least one book that like we had been yeah. looking at and assumed we would read, but had to come to the place of like, this is just not going to happen. I'm so sorry to you, book. Um our next Patreon episode coming out, next we're going to record this later today, will be kind of our catching up on what we read in this this weird shoulder season between really mid-December mm-hmm. and now. So if you're interested in that, uh, you know, that's going to be on the Patreon here pretty quick. But first we should do our first sponsor break and then get into the actual links and stories and our, and our normal grist for the mill. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It, we'd be remiss... Not even remiss, but sad, mad of ourselves, not to shout out um, Book Riot editor Kelly Jensen's, we've mentioned her on the show, her continuing work um, about censorship and freedom of speech and collection issues in libraries and schools over over 2022. I think we didn't really power rank our 10 stories of the year, but I think both of us Mm -hmm. would probably put that as our number one story uh, of 2022. And Kelly's been a big part of telling that story and got so much deserved recommendation, recommendation. recognition, commendation, which I put into recommendation. That's an interesting <laughs> portmanteau of something that already exists. Um, show title. Uh, and uh, Publishers Weekly's People of the Year were the defenders. Basically, the, the bulwark of people who are out on the, I guess, figurative front lines, but given the open carry laws in some states, maybe the actual front lines of libraries and schools and trying to keep as many books um, that the teachers and guardians of those spaces want to have um, so the books can be provided for people. She was mentioned as one of the storytellers, right? There's a people doing the work on the front lines. There's people covering it and amplifying and make sure people know about it. Um, well-deserved recognition. I'm yes. really proud of her um, and glad to see that that's been 
uh, kept at the forefront. Not even a niche outlet mentioned in that, actually. <laughs> it was just a full-throated, you know, covering it for a wider community. That's us. Rebecca. And they got that book riot is two words. I feel like I should send them like a fruit cake or a Virginia ham or something anytime, any of you know, some, just some kind of a, a nice uh, Harry and David basket. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pears. You like those pears, don't you? I loved uh, Publishers Weekly's description of Kelly's work and their, especially mm. their note that she's pierced the fallacy that this wave of bans is some kind of grassroots movement about age appropriate materials yes. or protecting innocence, calling it out for what it is a nationally organized political operation. And Kelly has been one of the first voices to call it that and just consistently reporting it herself and gathering stories from other people's reporting that that support this and that help us look at what is really behind the words that the people who are trying to ban books are saying. Couldn't be prouder ever. Couldn't be prouder. You can find a link in the show notes there to see the other people um, that are, that are mentioned. Um, I've got to follow up, but why don't you do this? Uh, we've got a guilty plea, kind of a, a lot of these stories we talk about that are, I don't know, scandalous. They go out with a whimper, not a bang. And the whimper to this story is what? The whimper to this story is that the manuscript thief, Filippo Bernardini, who was arrested by the FBI last year after about five years that we know of, of stealing or attempting to fraudulently acquire authors' manuscripts, uh, is set to plead guilty tomorrow on Friday, January 6th. Um, According to the indictment that was released when he was arrested, I was reading in this piece, um, he registered more than 160 fraudulent internet domains that impersonated publishing professionals and publishing companies. That's just a lot of work over the course of those five years, which brings it's a lot of GoDaddy. <laughs> it's so annoying. Truly, GoDaddy is the worst. The worst. So, like Filippo, I'm you know I kind I'm kind of glad. Maybe that slowed him down <laughs> in his fraudulent <laughs> activities. How bad GoDaddy is, but the yeah. motive remains. A giant question mark. And that is the whimperiest part of the whimper, not a bang ending to this. He's going to plead guilty. Eventually, we will find out what sentencing looks like. But that motive was never uncovered. He never said why he was doing this. And there was never any evidence presented that he intended to profit from this, or if so, how he would have profited from it. So the best we can tell this continues to appear to be somebody doing a thing simply for the joy of being able to do it. Hmm. Cost of that looks like it's going to be relatively high. Um, but yeah, for for the scandalous nature of those first headlines and for how mysterious it was and how much work he put into so this, it's a whole lot of work. That's a, just a lot of GoDaddy time for no pay. Uh, so I guess we'll see what happens next. And I will continue to provide updates, but it's hard for me to imagine that the updates are going to get any more interesting. No. Um, let, let's convene the court of rightness and truth for a minute. Mm. Can we, can we put our, I'm going to gavel us in. Sure. All right. The court of rightness and truth is convened. Um, Rebecca, as the two, the two person um, panel here, I'm going to propose to you the following. Whatever the sentence is, there's a, say it's a hundred units of sentence. How much of that would you shave off as a member of Truth and Rightness if you could get a full-throated explication from, from our, boy, our boy Phil? Oh. Right, what would it be worth to you as a steward of the public, of um, a satyr of, of, of voyeurism, but also just a basically a servicer of WTFness in the yeah. world? How much do you think it would be worth the universe writ large 
to shave a little, you know, take take it take the rind off the orange of his sentence. I don't know, maybe more. What would you do here? I if, would if, you, if the court of rightness and truth had jurisdiction. I would give him ten percent of it off for his own version of the story, and thirty percent off if he told it to Michael Lewis and gave Michael Lewis access to all of his things. I didn't even think about that. That's really well considered. And that's seconded and approved. Now we're voting. I don't really know how judges work. I was on jury duty recently. And what I learned You're is that it's all a house of cards it. in the jury thing. So we can say whatever here. We can just I, decide. I, I'm going to be thinking about that forever, um, to be honest with you. I do also story. think his, I don't, I don't know if the court can do this because I'm not a lawyer, but I would love to see whatever the sentencing is include a prohibition against selling the real story for a book deal. Maybe that's the long con here. Maybe. Step one, go daddy <laughs> to <you> drop. <laughs> Step two, question mark, question mark, prison time. Step three, tell all. I'm now going to be played by, I don't know who, Jesse Eisenberg in a, <laughs> in a, in a, in a limited series based on Michael Lewis's book. Um, Admit it, you would watch that. I would 100% watch that, and especially because I am like I've renewed my love for Jesse Eisenberg after the Fleischman is in trouble adaptation. Yeah, I, I was stacking the deck there because I knew you were watching that and enjoying it. Yeah, that. yeah. I don't know that we can sell Jesse Eisenberg as an Italian man, uh, but we could we could talk about that later. The court has you know, done its work just, today. Just just make him Jesse Eisenberg, you know, which is sort of this New York uh, intellectual sort of nebbishy guy, which I love his oh, persona. Yeah. I don't know how much of it is an act, um, but I, I kind of enjoy whatever vibe he always throws down. He's apparently really like, like a really genuinely nice guy in person, yeah. but all of the interviews and uh, media stuff that I follow has said that. So it's interesting that he ends up playing these like sort of jerky, twisted characters a lot of the time, right. but he does it very well. He... He apparently, this is now rumor. We're in rumor time. Um, when I was teaching at Institution Redacted, <laughs> he was taking, I, I was given to understand he was in a writer's workshop or a literature course there, so I'd kind of see him around. Sure. Uh, and that I thought that was cool. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you're, you're an actor and you're like, you're going to go take a 9 a.m. workshop. <laughs> That's, I remember that, that's that's I like yeah that. when I was in high school it was like a very big deal that Julia Stiles was going to I think one of the Ivy League colleges like that was the height of I, I have 10 offline comments oh for you. I'm ready for that haven't I told you that I can't believe I haven't I have a new, I have a story I haven't told you where's my calendar the beauty of having oh to hold each other stories for 10 years is that we've forgotten some of them well there you go yeah Okay, so that's uh, that can't even go on the Patreon just just because it's right. creepy. Otherwise, uh, I want to do a quick follow. We got a, we got one really long email, and I didn't share it with you, and I will after okay. after this from someone involved in the HarperCollins strike, and then another HarperCollins employee at a non New York office. Interesting. And I thought together they were they warranted another moment. Um, so the first the first one is from someone who was disappointed. I would say that we didn't make more of the strike, both kind of on the show writ large and then especially in our big stories of the year. I'm not really here to defend that pick um, or whatever it might be, but in the course of reading that email and thinking about myself, I guess I wanted to make clear for my own self that I'm in favor of the union doing their thing. They're back on the picket line right now. Um, I think it is really important. I don't have a good sort of sense of the leverage piece and what it's going to matter and everything else like this. But I do want to make clear that this is something that um, we're behind. I guess I'm a little skeptical of union. This is this is going to sound bad as 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 me, but I guess I'm not as excited about unions in general because I think it's sort of the 
they're good when they're needed. And in this case, I think it is in a lot of these situations. But I feel like often a union is the sign of management failure. Yes. Um, so as an as a employee, I can imagine it's your it's your last best hope for something. I think the metaphor I used with you, which I kind of like on Slack yesterday, is they're kind of like restraining orders. Mm-hmm. Like if you need one, they're really great to have. But I'm not looking to try to have one, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, I think this makes a ton of sense. I think the pay for entry-level workers, uh, full-time staff at these places, especially in New York, I wouldn't say barbaric, but it's... It's not good. I don't think it's fair, and I don't think it's good, and I, that certainly. And then the other things about DEI and inclusion I think are wonderful. I don't know enough about how a union can can do that. My own experience with unions as teachers, as teachers in various places, was generally positive, but there are downsides to it as well. So you might have heard in, in, my, in my own, I don't know, lack... You know, I'm not holding up picket signs here and, and joining the strike. Some of it is my own personal stuff about unions, but in general and in specific here, if the employees think they need a union, I'm for those employees because it generally means there's something else that's going on here. And a couple other sort of like factual things, I think. One is I think there's 250-ish employees um, of HarperCollins on strike out of the 6,000 employees. I think one piece of information that this person who wrote in especially caught my eye, which is that's 250 out of like the 800-ish people in the New York office, maybe 600 people. And those mm-hmm. are the, the, that's the only group that's eligible. Interesting. Okay. And when you think about where the locus of power in publishing is for these big five, it is in New York. So if you put it in those terms, I think that's a bigger deal, actually, especially when you couple that with another email I got, we got, I read, from someone else who works for HarperCollins in a non-New York office who before this strike didn't even know there were unions at some part of HarperCollins, mm. didn't even know there was a history of a union at HarperCollins, and is... And they they were, I think, didn't say this explicitly, but I was reading between the lines, as English majors are wont to do, that they thought it was interesting for the rest of HarperCollins that's not unionized or maybe can't be or whatever, that there may be some knock-on effects there. So I guess I was just giving some more context. I want to acknowledge this really long, thoughtful email um, and, you know, just stay, stay a little moment on that. So I, I'm not sure if you have anything else yeah. you want to say there. I, I, what do you think of that 250 out of 600 at the New York office? I mean, does, that, does that change your Tumblr a little bit it about does. You know, the leverage they may or may not have? That's a meaningful shift. 250 out of six or 800 is meaningfully different than 250 out of 8,000 um, by like an order of magnitude. So that does significantly change my perspective on what kind of leverage they might have, especially as we think about... New York being sort of the center of power in that corporate life for HarperCollins. So I really appreciate that. It's interesting then that the the big pieces of coverage about this situate that 250 against the full company's 8,000s, yeah. like the New York Times reporting that we've been following where, where those pieces of information mm-hmm. came from, um, pr- sort of had grounded me in the like, this is 4% of the total company how much impact can they possibly make? Uh, but like you, and like I think we said while discussing it, I think all of the things that the union is requesting are more than reasonable. They are so yeah. obviously reasonable. And in some cases, I think these folks should be asking for more. Like a $50,000 mm-hmm. base salary in New York is not enough. <laughs> Um, uh, that I, I fully support those requests. And I do hope that their efforts succeed. 
I didn't have a sense or my sense was completely different of how likely this was to be successful inside HarperCollins because that 250 out of 8,000 sounds much smaller, is much smaller than these new numbers that we're getting. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more in terms of Mm -hmm. is it a big story of the year or not? I think my jury is still out on that. When we know how it has turned out, then we will know if it was a big story. And I'm sure that that's not the thing you want to hear if you're inside that experience where this is the thing that's governing your life. So I I totally understand um, the frustration and I really appreciate those listeners reaching out to us. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. So anyway, um, we're, we're going to continue to follow it. And I was poking around. I didn't, I didn't spend too much time, but kind of poking around for more, uh, adjust the facts, Mm ma'am, about the demands and the strike and everything. And I didn't really find something I liked. Um, so I'm going to continue poking around. If any listeners out there have seen one or know of one, um, podcast at bookwrite.com. Um, going from not, not an apology really, but some context around this to, this is what I like to call vindication, Rebecca Shinsky. <laughs> this is what I like to call, we do it for a reason. And if you try hard, your dreams can come true. And this happened while we were on break, and it was the release of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2022. And for all of my wringing of hands mm-hmm. and rending of garments, um, rending of garments, wringing of hands, <laughs> this is what I was – I didn't even know. I didn't even put it in – I daren't hope to dream that this is the kind of list I would get from Barack Obama when I entered upon my front list voyage at the beginning of 2022 – and I've got to say, it's all—it's now all worth it. It is. Because you know why, Rebecca? Tell the people why I'm, I'm gloating to myself for no reason today. <laughs> okay. Are you having less of an existential crisis about this one than Let's say- roll it back. Let's run it back, Rebecca. Let's go again. Another, another lap around the sun so that I can get this thing. And I guess through whatever refracted thing of overlapping reading list means, I too can be- one quarter of 1% of the person that Barack Obama is. Yeah, this is a satisfying list. There's 13 titles on it, but one of them yeah. is Michelle Obama's book, The Light We Carry. So for my purposes, there are 12 titles on this list. If my Michelle had written a book, it would be on my list, and I wouldn't expect it on his. We, 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 you have to. We, we chalked that one up. Yes. We kind of put that to the and side. He, There's right. even a, and he a notes, parenthetical Yeah, there. he has a little parenthetical yeah. note that says, I'm a bit biased on this one. But Michelle's great, and I'm sure the book is good, too. So that's fine. But there are 12 non-Michelle Obama books on this list. Yes. I've read six of them. That is validating. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I've read one, two. I didn't count because I want to do it live. That's the kind of troll that I am to myself, to everyone. Oh, no, I've read one, five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, nine. No, so the only I have ones read I haven't six. read. Okay. Let's do the whole list. Yeah, the only one, uh, uh, The Light We Carry, Chalk. Mm-hmm. Sea of Tranquility, Yes. Okay. Trust Hernandez. I really like that. You're. It's on your radar. You're kind of circling mm-hmm. it, right? If I remember correctly. Yep. Revolutionary Sam Adams. I don't feel too bad about this one for a couple of reasons. One, political biographies are not my thing, and he is him. So, <laughs> you know, if I was going to guess that, if I was going to sort of guess a category of non-overlap, I certainly would have a some political book. I am not yeah. I'm never going to so. read the big presidential biography or founding no. fathers biography. Though Stacey Schiff doing Sam Adams is closer to yes. what I might actually do. If I were but, going to read one, I would read the Stacey Schiff one. Um, the next one is The Furrows by Namwale Serpel. On my radar, I think debut novel. I no. saw it talked around. I didn't get not to a it. debut. No, it's not a debut. It's her third novel. No. I read it last week during the holiday well, break. So I'll talk so about that's one for you. Yeah. 
Um, South to America, a journey below the Mason-Dixon line to understand the soul of a nation by Imani Perry. Again, I'm a bad person. These sorts of current political books, I tend not to read these. I'm sure this is really good and important. Wasn't going to make it onto my list. Now we go on a run. Mm -hmm. School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. That was a January release last year. I read it. A lot of people liked that. I thought it was okay. I missed that But I did read it. Black Cake. Yes. This was the debut by Charmaine Wilkerson. Both you and I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a, a good a good debut in the beginning of uh, what we will watch. Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands is a large graphic novel by Kate Beaton about being on the oil sands um, as kind of reportage. I read this. It's really cool. It was kind of a hipster pick. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean I saw it on Pals and a lot of people buying it. And there was a handwritten sign there and I saw it in some other places. Um, I'm, I would guess he also saw that as, as an indie, maybe a politics and prose and picked it up. So I'm just kind of guessing there. Then we go on Immense World, yep. Ed Young, both of us, mm-hmm. Liberation Day. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think if we emailed him <laughs> our file on the ranking of Liberation Day stories, um, he would listen to it? And, and more importantly, were he to listen to it, would he agree? And if he were to agree, would he sign us, send us a nice handwritten note saying, good job, guys, this is no a, notes? This is a beautiful dream. Maybe we can get him to come on when George Saunders releases his next collection and join us in ranking how George saunders these George Saunders stories are. Um, then Candy House, Jennifer mm-hmm. Egan. Yep. You've heard us talk about this several times. And Afterlives by Abdulraza Gurna, which, again, Nobel Prize winner, new book. But I, I really like that too. So there you go. I guess this what I guess this is what I'm trying to do, and it got me thinking. Look, I can spin an existential crisis even from victory. So this is how this went. Uh, what am I trying? To, what do we? What do we? I would think a lot of people look at this list. They look at Barack Obama, and I look. I put myself in this category of thinking of him as a kind of almost ideal reader of books. Right? When mm-hmm. people think of being well read, who else are you going to point to? Because you're not going to point to someone who reads like 600 books a year, like Lib is an impossible standard. Right. Most of it, we can't do that. So you're not looking at someone like that. You're looking at someone who reads a lot, but they have other, you know, it feels like some, it feels attainable, right? You're not, yeah. gonna, I'm not going to be Usain Bolt, and, but if I could work out three times a week, that's, I feel pretty good about myself here. Is Barack Obama sort of the ideal reader? When we imagine ideal reader, are we, lo- are we looking at a list like this and a person like this? If not him, who then? Yeah, I think I'm looking for serious and eclectic wide like a wide ranging interest um, that shows you know awareness of a variety of parts of the world and human experience and so i want to see some literary fiction i want to see some experimental stuff i want to see some nonfiction. this he his lists kind of consistently do this i think this one is more interesting than some of the past lists there have been Mm. years where those where the lists felt pretty safe Um, but some of these titles are pretty challenging um the furrows was dark and weird and candy house is weird and liberation day is like dark and weird and also tender and light and wonderful because george saunders their establishment weird which is That's his own true. genre right we could throw nell zinc in there and some other people mm-hmm. and um but their establishment weird but I, I hear what you're saying you're it's not a it's not a critique of your or i, I guess not to put words in your mouth <laughs> but one of your observations has been there's a lot less sort of genre than we might like for ourselves. And I'm not saying this idea of the ideal reader is, quote unquote, the ideal reader. I think it's what people think about when they think about being well read, mm-hmm. which is a slightly different definition of mine because I think that term is less useful than a lot of things. But like have some fun, right? Yeah. Read a romance, read a read a, a memoir that's funny or 
um, you know, you know, whatever else it is, but like get get a little dessert in there or or whatever else it might be. This is a pretty indie bookstore forward kind of a mm-hmm. list, right? Yeah, you know, you're going to see these things with with shelf talkers at. Um, I don't know, three lives right. in but Greenwich like, Village. I think S.A. Like Cosby was on one of his lists. Yeah. Like, eh, he's, he's thrown in, we've seen some mystery thriller. I don't think we've seen a romance. I would love to see a romance make mm-hmm. Barack Obama's favorites. I think that is part of the eclectic reading or really like extending your liberal arts education into how you read as yeah. an adult. That's I, that's really what I'm, that's what I'm striving for. And that's what I like to see from Mm-hmm. a list like this. So anyway, I guess that's that's the list. Any other other notes about this? I think this is the first graphic novel that we've seen him do. Yeah, I think that's and right. It's the most literary upper middle brow kind of thing. <laughs> I'm not if you're, there was going to be one, I'm not surprised. I was surprised to see one on here, but once I saw what it was and thinking about it, I'm not. I'm not yeah, I feel like the John Lewis March graphic novels might have been on these lists. Oh, That's yeah. a little bit more of a straight shot though for Barack Obama than right. somebody like That's Kate right. Beaton who does ha- have some whimsy, she can be a little bit offbeat. Um Yes. Yeah, I like the little the peaks of Obama like letting the weirdness come out a little bit like the, it, george saunders is weird like as you said establishment weird but it's yes. weird sea of tranquility is weird you have to be willing to like be ungrounded and not quite know what's happening in those books and i, I yes. like this for good mothers is sci-fi oh mean, is it okay. fic bordering on sci-fi so it's a, but it's literary sci-fi yeah there's like a fundamental i think the word i've been searching for for the last five minutes is curiosity this reflects a fundamental mm-hmm. curiosity about what's happening in books, but really the world writ large. And that was the thing that I appreciated about him as a president. It's a thing I appreciate about yes. him as a thinker. Um, so happy to see it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel bad. We could end the show for the sure. year now. We'll come back in 2023 <laughs> and check out this list. Um, here's a thought too. I was, I was, I wanted to put this in the show notes for obvious reasons, but also I thought it's just a good topic. I would have made hay out of it, whatever the list was. We always enjoy this particular one. So I Googled for Barack Obama's favorite books of 2022, and the first result was um, bookriot.com. Oh, we like to hear that. Which I like to hear that. So if Barack, if you ever forget what books were your favorites of 2022, you can just Google and we, we got you covered there. If Barack ever wants to talk to us, the thing I really need to know is who's recommending your books to you, him and Oprah. Court of Truth, yeah, that's a that's a long-standing subpoena from the Court of Truth. <laughs> yeah, having a hard time with the process server on that one, but you know, it's a All small right. panel. Uh, we got to take our time. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I guess a couple of Publishers Weekly shouts to Publishers Weekly. If you like mm-hmm. the show, it might be worth looking at a subscription. Or a lot of libraries carry this. Um, I continue to want to shout out the people that write these things uh, when possible. Um, I don't, I don't know there's a lot to say about book sales for 2022. There's an extra shopping day, I guess, mm-hmm. over 2021. Like, you get really great. There's like an extra and, Saturday in the holiday shopping season. Yeah, w- which matters. I think the takeaway from me and looking at some of these other stories from Publishers Weekly and other places, we're basically our, our, our COVID-era book sales boom has – the tide has gone out. But the the water level is still higher than it was in 2019. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's good. When COVID struck, I think the publishing industry would have signed for this result. I think that's right. I was talking to somebody on the bookstore side 
earlier this week who was telling me that they've reached the same conclusion for their business that we have reached for our business, which is like you cannot compare your 2022 numbers to your 2021 or 2020, especially numbers with any kind of objectivity because those years were so strange. But if you look at 2019, which was our last pre-COVID normal year, and then 2022, which for the purposes of book sales was a pretty normal year. That 2019 to 2022, those results against each other do show a lot of growth, even though not nearly as much as you might have seen if you were just looking at like 2019 to 2020. Those were just, you know, outliers in multiple senses and the truest sense of the, the statistical meaning for those. Should we go on to the publishing salary? Anything? I don't have anything else to say no. there. I, I'm kind of more interested, but though even have less to say, the salary <laughs> survey because um, it's the same old John Philip Sousa March, yeah. I guess. I, Three years later, they haven't done their questionnaire um, for a few years. I had forgotten about this. This is always an important work, important work that Publisher Weekly does to look at the salaries. Because if publishers don't want to tell you how many books they sell, they certainly don't want to tell you how much they pay people. <laughs> See up in the podcast about the strike. Is there any improvement here? Little bits, you know, it's the participants in the survey and there were about like just over 550 people, I I think, which they said is lower participation than they've seen in past years, but they didn't note by how much that's still a a pretty robust sample size. 83% of the respondents were white. That's down from 84% in 2019. So does that tell us that there's been diversification of the publishing workforce by maybe a percent, or does it just tell us something about this group of respondents we don't really That's know? That's one respondent, yeah. right? I mean, we're, we have to be well within the margin of error, yeah. whatever that it's, looks like here. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, the, the trend that was most interesting to me, not surprising, but good to hang a lantern on and just note is that in the questions that the survey asked respondents about had their companies made efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how much progress had those companies made, you can get into the particulars in the link we'll put in the show notes. But overall, the white respondents reported about 10% more improvement than the non-white respondents did. Um, So that's interesting. I think that tends to happen just out in the world in general. Um, the, the white people obviously have it easiest in this situation and feel like more progress is happening than the people who are marginalized are experiencing. Uh, and that we continue to see that publishing is predominantly female. 77% of employees who responded were female, 20% were male, 3% were non-binary. And there's a $20,000 gap in median salary there. The women reported a median salary of $70,000. The men reported a median salary of 90000 And PW notes like, this is for the same reason that it's always for and that the men are concentrated in management. So same problems that we've been seeing for as long as this survey has existed in time that this podcast has also existed. I don't, I don't see much change here. It doesn't look like anything's gotten worse. Um, and two thirds of the respondents said that they expect or plan to still be employed at the publishers that they're currently working for in the next year, which is not the most exciting prospective retention, but is also not abysmal. It doesn't look like there's going to be a mass exodus. Um, there's there, the job you know, sat number was surprisingly good. I thought 88% of respondents said they were satisfied with their current positions to varying degrees. Yeah. That's pretty good. I, what industry is better than that? Yeah. It's 88% is a wonderful result, yeah. I think, for that. You know. um, 
Hmm. I, you know, another one that jumped out to me is, um, will your company stay committed to diversity in the long term? Mm. White respondents, 65% said yes, and 40% of non-white respondents say no. So I think there is a healthy and warranted skepticism yes. on behalf um, of that cohort, mm-hmm. um, for sure. So anyway, um, also the, the non-white respondents there were 40 yes, 20 no, and 39% don't know. Huh. So that's a, that 39% is maybe, that's a maybe? Yeah, I guess is that another way of thinking about that? Mm-hmm. We are in uncharted waters with how central it is to discourses all along um, the workforce, writ large, to varying degrees in publishing. I have to imagine an industry is more liberal on this matter than most. So maybe that's what's coming in here. If 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 it's ever going to happen, it's going to be now. Maybe <laughs> yeah. Um, result there. So you can check out the full results there. Um, the write-up by Jim Milliot in Publishers Weekly, and I assume this would administer administered by a bunch of staff mm-hmm. in Publishers Weekly, so go check it out over there. Uh, let's do another sponsor break, and then we'll come back to kind of, uh, is this, we're looking at maybe, it's kind of techy, tech yeah. corner, tech, tech wing, wherever we're going to go um, from here. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Um, Apple, in a stealthy move... For what is definitely a Thursday, you know for sure today is Thursday, um, has softly launched AI narrated audiobooks and that are available in the Apple bookstore. I have to admit, I am of two minds about this development, and maybe we can walk through. Are, are you of two minds or are you of one mind about this development? I can't decide how many minds I'm of about okay. it. So, yeah, let's walk through it. Tell All me right. your two. So, on the pro. I guess there, well, let's start on, is the conventional wisdom from dummies like me would be creepy weird? Do you think that's the conventional position from people in books? Creepy mm. weird? We don't like this? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it, yeah. if the, I don't know if the conventional opposition to it would be that it's creepy weird or more like how good could it be? Like narration is so important to audiobooks. Right. Let's say this. How about for various reasons, the conventional wisdom was like skeptic, skeptical. Sure. Yes. Skepti- skeptical minus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> skeptical leaning farther away from yay. Agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So I guess there's a couple of reasons. One is how good can it be? Though, if you've been following developments in AI recently, I think you need to update your priors about how good things can be. That's I certainly true. need to in, in the post of the open jet chat GTP mm-hmm. and some of the image stuff going on. Um, also, do we want this? Right. Do yeah. we want this at all for a variety of reasons? Would One would be, is it taking 
gigs from humans who are narrating things. I wonder, it certainly could if it got good enough. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't listened to one of these. I'm going to try to find one to see kind of what the experience is like. Um, if we were a different kind of show, a is this AI generated audiobook narration would be a fun <laughs> segment uh, to listen to and try to guess. But that's that's for another day, another pod. Get your own podcast, Jeff, who is talking on this podcast. Um, so there's that. And then the other one would be kind of a slippery slope argument, which would go towards writing of things, <laughs> coverage of things, other, you know, is this, the th- is this the camel's nose under the tent? And mm-hmm. the camel will come hard upon if, if given the opportunity here. That all makes sense to me. On the other hand, audiobook narration is time-intensive and expensive because it takes a human reading a book and editing it, which makes it very hard for smaller publishers and self-published people to do, right? So this is an inexpensive way of making audiobooks possible from just a selling books point of view, but also from an accessibility yeah. point of view, right? If you, for accessibility, for whatever reason, if texts, uh, if words on a page or screen does not work great for you, audiobooks have been a wonderful boon to you, but there's still these, I'm not even sure they're edge cases, but there's still a lot of books, academic presses, smaller titles, backlist titles that don't have audiobooks, and there's not really a financial case to pay for full human-generated audiobook production, and this can be a solution to that. I don't know how much this costs. I don't know anything about, like, if I have a bunch of self-published books and I want to make one available, what I have to pay. I don't know any of that. But I'm just talking from, from a sort of a strategic philosophical level here. That's, do, do, does that outweigh the creepy weirdness part? Maybe for me. Yeah. It might. It might, honestly. I think that if I... If we get past the how good could it be question, or if the AI becomes pretty good, good enough, like, is it going to be Jim mm-hmm. Dale narrating the Night Circus? Probably not. But is it good enough to narrate some piece of nonfiction or whatever that the publisher did not want to spend the money on full production? If you get to good enough, I think that I can be in favor of this as a tool in publishers' toolboxes, as One more way to get material to readers who want to have access to it, primarily because of that accessibility thing. You know, like we both prefer nonfiction audiobooks. That's a great experience. It can be a fun way to consume a thing. But we both also don't have a problem reading in print if an audiobook is not available for a title. And that's not a situation that many readers are in. And I want the audio versions to be available for people who need them. If that's the only way that you can experience a book, I want you to have access to it. And if publishers' budgets don't allow them to invest in audiobooks of everything that they publish in order to support that accessibility, then I'm deeply in favor of technological solutions to it. And this is weird. It's new. I think it's scary and weird because it's new um there will be a lot of there's a lot of questions and a lot of ethical stuff to work out along the way not just in this industry but in the world as ai just becomes more of a thing we're going to have to have some conversations about it but i think it's here and it's interesting (sighs) it's interesting to see this kind of use of it that's attempting not to take over something but to i think add a wedge to fill in a wedge of the pie that has not been filled in. Um, If we start hearing stories about, you know, beloved audiobook narrators not getting deals because 
the publisher is just going to go with the free AI version. I think that's a bad experience for readers. I don't want that to happen. And I don't want to see people lose jobs over it. We can talk about that later. But as this, yeah. as this exists as a possibility, and that we're like far enough away from the bottom of that slippery slope where the AI might take over everybody's jobs forever. I'm, I'm really open to, and I think beyond that interested in seeing how it could be a useful supplement. Yeah, I guess, I mean, this has happened through the history of all industries. I'm sure I know a little bit more about the history of publishing and printing, especially like there was a point in which a lot of the publishing industries, we know it were people putting in letters into presses by Mm -hmm. hand. And that was, and those were, it took a lot. It was very expensive and things got less expensive and you could do more because those things started to get automated. It did cost those people those jobs. I wonder if in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, there's going to be audiobook narrators writ large. Because, I mean, I've started some of the stuff like with James Earl Jones's voice in Star Wars stuff that's gone mm-hmm. through this re-speechifying technology. And I might be, this might have been a fever dream I had, but I believe that he may have sold the rights to his voice to like this digital voice company. So they oh, can, wow. like if he dies or, you know, becomes whatever, just doesn't want to do it. It's like, well, you can take, you know, the hundreds of hours that I've recorded and put it into the digital blender and it can spit out things that um, sound like me. I guess in the fullness of time, it's pretty reasonable to think it may be indistinguishable from a human. Mm-hmm. And if the whole industry of audiobook narrators goes away, that's certainly bad for them. Is it bad for the reading world writ right. large? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't answer either. that. Mm-hmm. Now, once we talk about AI generating the novels that we read that are on the cutoff double-day front list that we have to draft from, oh boy. that seems to me a horse of a different color, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know that it is. But I'm kind of holding that in abeyance for a while, um, at the very least. We'll see. And, and there's some stuff now that are... You know, you know those inflatable uh, tubes they put in bowling alleys for like for kids, just oh, to make the bumpers, sure no one hurts yeah. themselves mm-hmm. and people have a good time. There's some bumpers here that I feel like are just for now about which mm-hmm. categories and you keep your rights. And I think it's to make this more palatable initially, but after a while, I would imagine those bumpers are going to go away. That's how these things generally work. Um, and I'm sure that they'll bring the price of audiobooks down that I have mm-hmm. to pay. I'm sure that's what'll happen. They tend to do this, right? They they won't. Okay, Court of Rightness and Truth. Two sessions rare for us today. Would you trade humans for audiobooks that cost just as much as ebooks? Assuming the audiobooks are good. Mm. No. Okay. Because there's something really ineffable about like listening to Hope Jaren get teary while telling her story. Or yeah. listening yeah, to I can't do that yet. Right? Yeah. Yeah, listening to Florence I mean, Williams. it is true. If you look at a category like food, right? People, and this happened for a while where, you know, the commoditized frozen dinner world took over. Mm-hmm. Look at, uh, see, you're and I childhood growing up in the Midwest. <laughs> and that's more efficient and it's, I don't know, cheaper and blah, blah, blah. But we've also seen in our lifetimes a blowback against that, which is the handmade, the artisanal, the whatever. So that also can happen, right? And Maybe there will be like a middle way where some books you could choose the cheaper AI narrated version or the like deluxe professionally narrated version. Rosario Dawson reading Artemis for an amount of money that I still Mm -hmm. think about sometimes. That subpoena (laughs) is also out in the Court of Truth of Rightness, by the way. We got a lot of questions. 
Yeah. Um, we're coming up on, you know, 45-ish minutes here. Do you want to do uh, Sanderson with Audible? This is inside baseball, but sometimes getting a glimpse inside baseball, hence money, like Moneyball is interesting. So maybe let's put it this way. Is this something or nothing for you? You put it in here, but that doesn't mean you necessarily think it's something. What would you I say think it's nothing. Like Brandon Sanderson going out on. Okay. Yeah. Brandon, yeah. Brandon Sanderson is you know taking aim at Audible's, what he calls unconscionably low uh, pay rates for indie authors. I think it is something because now that Brandon Sanderson, who is a big deal, is functioning as an indie author, you know, for these Kickstarter titles, he's seeing some of the, you know, dark side of Audible. And it's good for indie authors to have a champion in someone like Brandon Sanderson. Will this do anything? Does Audible care? Probably not. Like, and also, it's no secret that the deals for indie authors are often difficult, especially if you're locked into the Amazon, you know, landscape exclusively. Mm. And audiobooks are so much more expensive and complicated in general than everything else. I think I was mostly like, Brandon Sanderson's got time for this today, but. Brandon Sanderson seems to be like a good guy who's interested in just pursuing what he sees to be as the right thing. Should these indie authors make more money for their audiobooks? I don't know. I'm not sure that that's a moral question. Um, but yeah. I don't think it's a moral question. <laughs> I'll just say that. I, I'm going, this is something not because of Brandon Sanderson sort of using his bully pulpit, which is a good use of it, I think, frankly. He now, one of the things he buys himself with this huge Kickstarter thing is. Um, F you money. Yeah, and a lot of goodwill, stuff, too. Great. And a lot of goodwill. And and it seems like he is a an honest broker in this regard, which he you know, he's given us the fact just the facts, ma'am. Mm-hmm. And if I were interested in some antitrust stuff on Amazon, I would look at Audible's uh. pay rates. And especially if especially this thing where you get a much lower commission if you only well, let's put it this way, you get a much lower percent of sales. If you make your audiobook available on other platforms, Barnes yeah. Noble, One, Kobo, and that's Apple, the same Apple. for Amazon ebook publishing as well. Yeah, if you yeah right. if you self publish right. on Amazon, you get a seventy percent right. payout if it's exclusive, and I believe it's thirty percent if you publish in multiple yeah. places. Yeah, which we've done a little of this ourselves in various. You know, we, we, yeah. we've seen behind the the curtain here, so we know that this if these specific percentages aren't true in general, this is the way of the world, and this is how a ninety percent of the audio. Um, industry flexes its monopoly muscle, right? This mm-hmm. is a reifying of your monopoly position by having positions in place. I'm not, uh, as everyone here, you may be confused that I'm not a antitrust <laughs> lawyer. I mean, I'm so expert on it. But this is a place I'd have real questions for someone who's in the antitrust. And like, just looking at that particular move by um, the 900-pound gorilla of, of audiobooks especially, people talk about like, Amazon being the big player in books, and they are, it's less so in print. I don't think there's an equivalent deal with print books, probably because they can't, because they don't have a monopoly or a near monopoly like they do for digital books and audio books. So that's the thing where I think it could be something. If this got in front of the right um, uh, junior prosecutor's (laughs) deck and they've had a couple (laughs) extra cups of coffee that morning, maybe it would be something. I guess, though, I I both agree with that, that the content of this is worthy of like somebody – 
in the Department of Justice taking a second look at. Um, But this information, none of the information is new. This is all widely available and known. That's true. So I don't know that Brandon Sanderson get, getting involved does anything other than maybe warn some potential indie authors off of doing this or at least open their eyes to the deal that they're making if they get in bed with Amazon and Audible and earn Brandon Sanderson also some goodwill for being a big guy out there fighting for the little guy, as it were. Um, I don't think he's doing it for that reason. I think Brandon Sanderson seems to be motivated pretty purely by getting out there and doing the right thing. But the knock-on effect here is Branderson, Brandon Sanderson, Branderson, we're going to just call him that, um, gets to look pretty good too. But I, I just don't know that this actually re- that this piece, Brandon Sanderson talking about this issue does anything. Oh, yeah, no, fair. Is the medium and the message, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, the message here could be the thin end of the wedge. Yeah. Boy, a lot of camels and wedges today. Uh, various <laughs> camels lines. and wedges is but... definitely the show title. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a wedge big enough and I can move any camel. Arthur <laughs> said that. Um, <laughs> we, sure. we better wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, let's do I'm going to do one more link shout out because I think it's interesting. I don't know enough about it, but I've definitely found myself um, furrowing my brown and reading with interest. This is a piece on Slate by um, Radamale de Leon about sort of downstream effects of TikTok's algorithms, Mm -hmm. especially around tropes, and how easy it is to find specific tropes and a lot of them all of a sudden. Um, Apparently, Allie Hazelwood gave an interview to Goodreads about her editor saying, I want to see these tropes in your book that became a bit of a flashpoint. I Mm -hmm. find this all very interesting. I don't have a dog in this particular hunt, especially around (laughs) romances. Um, But I found it really interesting. So if you're looking for something to read, that's a little outside of our wheelhouse, but I think you put it in here for the same reason I found it interesting. Like, look at this thing. Yeah. (laughs) We don't have much else to say about it. Shouts to listener Amanda who sent us this. Oh, yes. um, To take a look at. I did read it. I thought it was interesting. It comes to some of the same questions we have about a lot of algorithmic and filter bubble situations Mm -hmm. of like, Ultimately, how satisfying is it if you can so easily find 9 million of the thing you like? Um, is Does yeah. the 9 millionth taste as good as the first one? Um, right. And that's, I think, an interesting question for the long-term uses of something like TikTok for book recommendations or, or something like that. So, yeah. yeah, tons of interesting food for thought there. Definitely take a look at that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's our show. You can find... Uh, all the links we talked about today, bookriot.com slash listen. Shoot an email, podcast at bookriot.com. And go check out the Patreon. We've got the winner preview draft up now, available right this moment. And coming soon, we're going to check in on our winter reading. we got all sorts of other stuff coming up um, on the Patreon there. Thank you so much, as always, Rebecca, and we'll talk to you all soon.